0: Welcome to Liberty Unlocked. I'm Don Watkins. All right, for this episode, I want to do something a little bit different. And that is, I want to talk about lessons I learned about capitalism and arguing for capitalism while writing each of my four books. So let's dive right in all right so let's start with my first book co-authored with ron brooke free market revolution where we offer a moral case for capitalism and the starting error that i think many people who've been exposed to ayn rand's ideas hold and i think i held in some form at the start was a view that amounts to this it's well look everybody knows that capitalism works The only question is why don't they support it well because they view it as immoral and like this is manifestly not true like if you actually listen to the debate for five minutes and think about it you do not hear a bunch of people saying oh clearly capitalism works it's that they really are attacking the idea that it works and saying no it's a complete disaster and so the question you would ask yourself is all right Or at least one question worth asking is well does is that what ayn rand says and it's definitely not what she says and i highly encourage people to go read the introduction to capitalism the unknown ideal where she makes the point that capitalism has as a factual matter demonstrated how much it improves human life that the facts are there you know the truth is out there if you want to put it that way but it's not that everybody recognizes it on the contrary, she says, it's that capitalism has demonstrated that it is the best system for human life. And what she says is that the people who do claim to support capitalism, the people who in some terms do recognize the benefits of the system, what they have done is they have failed to acknowledge and address the conflict between altruism and capitalism and this is really important it's not that they failed to provide a moral basis although that's true but if you just put it that way um they would say well no of course we have a moral basis we'll say capitalism helps the poor and maybe it's an adam smith type argument where you say capitalism is good you know achieves the moral good even though the individuals involved may be doing something that's not particularly morally noble like pursuing their self-interest and her point is that no in failing to confront what is a real contradiction between altruism which is saying the good is to sacrifice yourself and a system in which you're free to pursue what's good for yourself you're free to pursue your own happiness that what has happened is that they've failed at their job the allegedly pro-capitalist side has completely dropped the ball in defending the system and as a result you have a the public left with no clue what is capitalism what are its principles what's its history and what's its moral meaning so that it's it's the It's the failure to confront and provide the conflict between altruism and capitalism and the failure to defend it on proper moral grounds, which is defend its moral essence, which is people's ability to live for their own sake. The result is not that people go, oh, capitalism works, but it's immoral. What happens is they don't even know what capitalism is, and this is the whole idea that it's the unknown ideals. They know nothing about it. They know nothing about including its history, and so that is really the kind of core picture that she's painting. And that is really what it means to say that capitalism doesn't, hasn't been provided with a moral defense and a moral foundation. It's that because of the inability and unwillingness, unwillingness of its defenders to face up to its nature, um, people don't get what it is that it has a proven track record of improving human life and that it is a moral system so that at a high level is the kind of first discovery i made is even what does it mean that capitalism needs a moral case but then it was well how does this actually get cashed out what is what is the process by which people's wrong moral views lead to their political conclusions and it's not that they have some general view of selfishness and then kind of deduce in a single syllogism well therefore capitalism is immoral because it unleashes selfishness and i really struggled with this one and it was the breakthrough i can't take any credit for except in so far as i recognize that that was the real issue um but uh Alex Epstein, he co-authored a chapter in in an updated version of why businessmen need philosophy on why conservatives can't stop the growth of the state. And Alex in particular had really worked out the kind of general pattern that we see. And the first thing that he points out, that he and Yaron point out, is that when you have conservatives defending capitalism, it's always in an abstract level it like when it comes to generalities yeah we're for free markets capitalism creates wealth it's awesome it's a system of freedom they'll say all kinds of great things but when it comes to specific issues they're often on the defensive and often embracing anti-capitalist policies and so the question is why is this and it and what alex does is really zero in on two key arguments which he calls the argument from greed and the argument from need. And of course, this is all in Ayn Rand, but it's really he kind of hones in on it as the central issue. And of course, the argument from greed is something goes wrong, we look around and we say, well, the causal explanation is that people have been too greedy, and they've been free to be too greedy. The government didn't stop them from pursuing their self interest. And that's what led to calamity, whether it is, you know, a corporate, um, scandal like Enron or whether it's the great depression or the financial crisis or the energy crisis, whatever the kind of particulars are people's, the, where their eyes shoot to is where was their greed? Okay. And then the satisfying conclusion is that's, that's what was driving this. And therefore, if we want to make things better, we need to stamp out greed, which means to control to regulate then the argument from need is pretty straightforward which is that if there are people with unmet needs requiring our sacrifice then we have a duty to sacrifice and that that is the kind of fundamental basis for any form of wealth redistribution for the whole welfare state and so it's through these two core arguments then that we can understand the way in which a general view of selfishness and a general view of the alternative of altruism of self-sacrifice it's through these kinds of arguments that we get an ever-expanding state and that conservatives and libertarians and people who don't have the uh, the moral understanding that Ayn Rand provides about capitalism and about ethics are on the defensive and often crusading against the system. Um, precisely because they have that kind of view, those arguments are compelling in the concrete. So that's the kind of basic issue of why capitalism is on the defensive. But how do you actually answer that? Like what would it look like to write a book that is going to address those concerns in a compelling way? And now the first thing that, you know, might come to mind is Uh, Well, effectively what I need to do is give them the cliff notes of Leonard Peikoff's Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand book. So, you know, we'll cut out a few chapters on morality and we'll cut out a few chapters on politics and then now we've kind of proven the case. And you know, to make that more concrete, right, it's well, first, we have to prove the objectivist ethics. So we'll start with, you know, values are that which one acts to gain or keep. And it's only life that makes values possible. And therefore, um, we have to have a whole set of virtues and values like rationality and and, and uh justice and pride and so on and then well okay now we have to figure out what's the antithesis and so you, so you see like just kind of regurgitating the whole of objectivism and it seems well you have to do something like that right because how else are you going to prove your morality and then prove your politics and i knew on some terms i never actually wrote any drafts doing that but it so it was a real question of well how can you make a compelling case if you're not going to do that and i spent a lot of time thinking about this issue and the real breakthrough was thinking about well, why is it that people are attracted to objectivism and in particular the objectivist ethics and on one level you could say oh it's the novels but what does that mean it's the novels it's it's not that people get to Galt's speech and they see, oh, the derivation of uh, values from life and think, okay, this is kind of the best argument for ethics ever. It's an important argument and and it is persuasive, but it's not what draws people to objectivism. Rather, to say that it's being attracted to the characters is seeing that there's a certain way of life that's appealing. And a another way to put that is it's just the sheer conceptualization of what it means to live a moral life and what it means to live in a moral society that is compelling to put it differently if you tell people that what ayn Rand's for is living for yourself neither sacrificing yourself to others nor others to yourself in a long-term rational way um there's no real answer to that every kind of attack on that is always denying that that way of life is possible not it, because there's nothing that you can really point to in that in saying well that's bad it's the the whole appeal of altruism is uh in trying to persuade us that no there is no such thing as an independent non-sacrificial life That there is only this choice between you sacrifice others to yourself or yourself to others and by the same token with capitalism the the whole way that you're attacking it is precisely by denying that a non-sacrificial way of life in society is possible but if you can get on the table a non-sacrificial way of life where all of us are able to get better off at the same time because we're doing it through our own independent action without sacrifice through voluntary relationships. Once that's put on the table and somebody grasps, yeah, I think there's a really good case for that, um, that that's possible. There's no kind of separate higher argument needed in order to justify it. Or let's at least put it this way you need a deeper argument in order to give full justification for it but in terms of what will make people inclined to even be concerned with do you have a great argument for it is that vision itself the vision of a non-sacrificial way of life and so i w- what it came down to is realizing that's what this book had to do what it had to do was put on the table ayn rand's conception of selfishness indicate that it was possible and then in and then show the system uh, show that it, what a free market is is it's a, it's a system that does unleash and reward selfishness, but not in the kind of conventional Bernie Madoff sort of way we're often told, but in the Ayn Rand sense, in the sense of it unleashes the kind of life and protects the kind of life that her heroes live, and and so it it that once I had that as well, that's really what the core argument of the book is because that's what will really persuade people um, then that was a real breakthrough moment now notice this is radically different from I think the way that you often get objectivists talk about their political arguments you'll often get something like "All right, here's my practical argument here's my moral argument so it'll be let me regurgitate you know the kind of straightforward uh, Austrian or Thomas Sowell kind of standard arguments that are often put in very collectivist types of terms, um, for capitalism. And then I'm going to also say it's moral because I'm going to say this policy protects rights or this policy doesn't violate rights. And whenever you're, and this is one of those things that just sets me off because the there are not two arguments it's not that there's a moral and a practical argument rather there's the properly conceptualized practical argument or there's the properly concretized moral argument it's the same argument from two different perspectives and that's really what free market revolution was laying out was that there's this one argument from capitalism that describes how the system actually works from a moral perspective it's it guards this way of life and therefore it works this way and that it's anti-capitalist ideas interfere with this way of life and that's why they lead to disaster it's the uniting of the moral and the practical that is really the key to understanding the objectivist way of looking at things and then the objectivist way of arguing for things and you can see that this is really the flip side of what i was talking about before where it's um it's not that people look out and say capitalism works but i think selfishness is bad it's that their view of selfishness gives them a false mental model of how the world works and so they bring that to bear in explaining the world around them so it's if there's a financial crisis well where was selfishness unleashed well it was on wall street and it was on in the real estate realm and so of course that's what's going to happen when we're too free and therefore we need to have more government control and what we're doing is we're replacing it with a new mental model which is no this is what selfishness means and therefore this is how to understand how it will work out under freedom and what happens when you interfere with that freedom so two quick things that i didn't have by the end of free market revolution so one is I really had no clue of well how would you implement this in terms of being persuasive in arguments so I knew how to paint the whole picture of capitalism as a system in the context of whole book but I couldn't do for instance and I'll talk about this more later um, you know what Alex Epstein had done or had started to do at that point in energy which was actually give people the tools to be more persuasive on these issues. I got kind of the core framework they needed, but not not how to apply it in a way that was really usable to others. And I think that was a real, um, I wouldn't say a real failure. I just like having a resource that gives you a proper conceptualization of capitalism is a really useful tool, but it just wasn't a full toolkit and was not therefore really usable for people even if they responded positively to it and i just didn't i didn't know how to do better at that point uh then the second thing i'll say is that i had not really fully integrated all the elements of kind of ayn rand's way of looking at things the whole objectivist system and certainly not if you brought in her more psychological views and things like that into my understanding of these issues. So, you know, how does this relate to collectivism versus individualism? How does the mind-body dichotomy fit in here? How about Ayn Rand's whole account of that it's fundamentally the course of freedom or forces determined by reason or mysticism? You know, I knew about these ideas, but I hadn't brought everything together in my mind in a fully integrated way, but at least this was a new level of clarity just looking at the level of morality, and a lot of those pieces would have to come in later. All right, let's turn to my second book, Roosevelt Care, How Social Security Sabotaged the Land of Self-Reliance. And the basic idea behind this book is to show the kind of creation of the American welfare state what made it possible what the results were and then ends with a philosophic criticism or more explicitly crit- philosophic criticism of the welfare state and a call for abolishing social security it's, the first part is very historical i mean it's just a historic narrative starting from before the welfare state all the way up to today and one of the things i realized researching free market revolution is just how abysmal the pro-freedom pro-capitalism literature is I mean, there's a lot of great economics, but once you get beyond that, I mean, it's basically a, it's really hard to find a lot of good material. And and in particular material, that's really useful if you want to um, understand and defend capitalism. And I had, I remember having a conversation at some point because I was wanted to write on the, I had to write a section on the entitlement state or the welfare state for free market revolution and i was just generally interested in those kinds of issues in part because i had trouble defending the objectivist view of like what it would mean to get rid of the welfare state and i remember having a conversation very early on with alex Epstein, where he said you know well, a good starting point would be see what happened before we had one and i thought oh that'd be great let me just look that up Well, problem was you couldn't easily look it up. Nobody had really written on this. There had been little pieces here and there. Later, I'd find uh, an academic book that went into it a little bit from a certain perspective on what are called mutual aid societies, which I talk about in the book, but there was really nothing that had been written at that point that gave a real picture of America before and after the welfare state um, from the perspective of somebody who was a supporter of free markets and so this just became part of my general view that like we have a lot of work to do and i'm gonna have to do what i can myself because it's just been so pitiful the amount and quality of the content again there's exceptions but if you think on on the history part even the only thing that had really been written to really look at the history of capitalism from a perspective of like at least you know rebutting some of the major charges against it was, well, I mean, Hayek had done something, capitalism, and the historians, and, but that was, you know, wildly outdated, and I don't think all that convincing, and certainly didn't address a lot of the things you would need to address. The one book was, um, Thomas DiLorenzo wrote a book on explicitly trying to use history, and I think he bills himself as a historian, uh, to defend capitalism. And I mean, I thought the book was, let's put it this way, it had its moments. But I mean, if you looked at the the references, I mean, he was citing on history, like just offhand comments by Mises and Hayek and things. And so it was this is not going to convince anybody, not certainly anybody genuinely concerned with the truth. And so the i was on the premise of i thought a lot more had to be done and so i knew all right well if i'm going to write something on the welfare state i want to get the history and one of the things i want to do is be really rigorous which is that I either want very reputable historical sources for things, or at the very least, I want people who are opposed to my conclusions. So at least it's very less likely that they're skewing things in my direction. And so that kind of became the policy as I set out to write Roosevelt Care. Now my biggest discovery writing it, at least at a high level, was that the way ideas shape actual policy shape actual culture are way more complicated than i had originally thought you know the basic insight that we talked about a second ago with the arguments for need and the arguments for greed that is a really powerful um condensation or or essentialization of the way that bad philosophic and bad moral ideas shape our debates but it is if that's all you know you don't really see in the concrete how ideas shape a culture because what you actually get is, I mean, frankly, a complete mess. So I've looked in depth at how, what kind of ideas and arguments were made all throughout from the start of progressives trying to uh, influence America in a different direction. And even before that, what were the currents of ideas that were in the American culture before the progressives even arose in this country? But from like 1880s, you know, when they started importing these ideas all the way till the 1930s, when they finally succeeded implementing Social Security, trying to get a sense of all of the key arguments that were being made. And one of the striking things is that almost very rarely do you get anything close to you should sacrifice for the poor because it's your duty there's some of that but what you actually get is just a complete mess of every sort of uh, argument and misunderstanding and um, complicated interacting frameworks that you could imagine so I mean just to give you a sense of this there's a blending that goes on between economic insecurity that arises during the Industrial Revolution as you have a new way of life taking place and that's very different from farm life. And what happens if people get injured? What happens if people get sick? What happens if, you know, as people start living longer, what happens if they reach old age and they can't work? And it's not like today where, you know, a person who's just on average productive can save hundreds of thousands of dollars relatively easily. Um, like what in the world do you do in that kind of scenario? And those are real questions, but yet they're getting blended with questions of, well, how do we take care of the poor? So it's how does any productive person protect themselves against, you know, catastrophic downsides and how do we ensure as a society, as a collective that everybody has their needs or at least their essential needs taken care of. Another thing that's going on is a big blurring of the line between the voluntary and the coerced. So a lot of the arguments that are going to be made for the welfare state is, look, this is not that different from things we're already doing. We're just taking the kind of mutual aid that's going on right now that, uh, you know, free people are engaging in private insurance arrangements, private charities, and all we're doing is having the government take them over and make them more organized and making it more predictable. there that there's not this clear gulf that no we're taking things from the voluntary to the coerced and so it's that whole blurring of this the the issue there that is playing a major role in the way these arguments are articulated you have that no we're not violating rights we're, create, we're just creating new rights. We're not violating property rights. We're creating new economic rights. And so this is kind of a variation of not making a distinction between the voluntary and coerced. You have the whole Great Depression, ultimately, that it's going to come along and they're going to say, look, this is a failure of capitalism. And this shows that private voluntary efforts aren't enough. So if you say free markets work and private charity can handle uh, people who need help, no, look, pi- private charity has been wiped out because of the scale of the mess and now we could say well yeah but the the great depression was caused by government this is not what would happen in a free market but again that's part of the whole milieu of the time the the kind of ideas that are put forward are that um are precisely denying that point and seeing this as look we have industrialization we have capitalism we have freedom and now we have a great depression and you can't solve this problem and just to pick one more Social and this goes up to today, and that's that social security is not portrayed as this is a welfare state program, but this is an earned benefit. This is social insurance, and so um, all of these together, and many many other arguments, and are really playing a important roles in ultimately getting these ideas to take hold in the country, and. So one of the huge challenges for me was to be able to keep the kind of treetop, philosophic, centralized perspective that sees that there's a real causal role for people's view of ethics in, in explaining this trajectory from America when it was created on the basis of individual rights and the pursuit of happiness and a culture that's built around self-reliance all the way to You know an entitlement state and a growing entitlement mentality being able to keep this basic thread that allows us to see the essential through line of the role of ideas but not dropping out the complexity not oversimplifying not treating it as not blinding myself to the actual and specific and complicated ways that that those arguments had to be put over because it is it's really useful to know that that there is a that when you're putting forward ideas calling for sacrifice particularly in a country like america that is not a country filled with people just you know walking around ready to give up happiness for their duty all the kind of misconceptualizations and distortions and confusions that are required to make that happen. And on the other hand, you don't want to lose that treetop perspective, because if it was just, hey, there's 100,000 arguments that went into making Social Security go through. And so well, what are you going to do? You're going to refute 100,000 arguments? No, you you can get to the crux of the issue. But um, part of being able to make a a counter-argument convincing is recognizing that, well, there's other things that have to be clarified and conceptualized so that, you know, a person has to have a perspective that, no, a free market does not lead to something like the Great Depression that would wipe out the ability of private individuals to cope with the challenges of reality. You have to get that there is a fundamental distinction between people engaging in voluntary behaviors in order to adapt and cope with the challenges of life and a government- coercive one they need to grasp that that something like social security is not an earned benefit rather it is one generation taking the unearned from a younger generation and then the younger generation being told hey don't worry you'll be able to grab the you know money from the next generation or not told that but that just being the reality of the situation that it is one generation reaching into the pockets of another generation and so um the the uh, coming out of the book there was just a such i had much more clarity at every level now from the most abstract the conflict between altruism and capitalism down to the most fine grain that is these multifaceted arguments that are focused on practicality and morality and appealing to your interest and appealing to your need to sacrifice for others and confusions about the nature of the program and the nature of America and being able to see it all through one lens and being able to hold it all in mind in a a new way that was, uh, I think, incredibly empowering. And then I tried to give it in a digestible way to the reader. So if I want to kind of synthesize all that into one key insider takeaway, it's that you rarely get direct appeals to pure altruism, that you have a duty to sacrifice because it's your duty. And um, this isn't only in political issues, by the way. It's, it's almost always that altruism will come with like a pseudo selfish appeal. I mean you've had to have heard this, right? Like, yeah, you should sacrifice for people, but it's not really a sacrifice because you'll feel good about it or something like that or it'll get you into heaven. Um, but there's not a real attempt to like prove, okay, it's not the starting point is how do we achieve the most happiness in our own lives? How do we achieve the most success and then thinking about that in a rigorous way? Rather, it's it has more the flavor of no, this is the good. And don't complain about it because, and then there's some hand-waving to try to uh, reassure people or take away an objection. Um, but it's a, it's a completely different orientation um, than actually thinking about, no, the good is to pursue your own happiness. And then we can think about, are there times when your happiness is served by a sacrifice and doesn't even make sense to call that a sacrifice? Um, but that in politics, that is almost always, it's, it's more like how lawyers argue, right? they'll come in and say, um, social security is not a new radical proposal. It's just basically stuff we've been doing all along that's perfectly consistent with the Constitution. And if it is a kind of new crazy experiment, don't worry, it's good for you. And if it's not good for you, don't worry, you have to do it anyway, because you have a duty to the elderly and so it's just this kind of like every possible argument they can make even if they don't fit together even if they don't integrate they're going to make. So one final thing on Roosevelt Care, which was I think you can see definite greater strides towards how you would actually take this broad argument that I give and turn it into actual messaging that people can use and actual policy proposals people can get behind. And certainly one thing that became clear from researching Roosevelt Care was the way in which progressives had been not just saying we need a welfare state, but having, creating, and advocating specific policy proposals for decades before they ever got success. And so I think this is certainly something that people who are pro-freedom have to do. What are things that we can do that would actually unwind bad government policies? But i think it has to be more than that so the one of the things that i've come to believe after having written roosevelt care and done a lot of things on the welfare state is that you are by defining the issue in those terms of okay here's my agenda for why the welfare state is bad and getting rid of it you've already lost like there's no successful way to do that except by folding it into a larger more positive agenda so having a kind of you could think of it as there's different ways but like an opportunity agenda and that one piece of that is rolling back something like the welfare state but it's also rolling back Uh, all kinds of regulations that are strangling people's ability to rise and creating lots of positive institutions and ideas and indeed I think really it has to be deeper than politics because in the end it's not true that freedom is just about getting rid of things that the government's doing. The government, a pro-freedom government actually has to very positively be working and proactively working in order to define rights and make sure that they're securing them effectively. But if you're thinking about an aspirational agenda that people actually get behind and that does not come across as just saying, no, don't do anything government. I think you need to think more widely than government. Like even if you were just focused on welfare state type issues, a lot of what I would be thinking about is how do we create a kind of like modern forms of insurance and mutual aid and things that will enhance opportunity. In fact, I mean, this could be very much tied to sort of a a movement in education. I think there's a lot of things that you could be doing, but it should be part of a broader positive agenda rather than focused around a negative, because I think that in the end can never be aspirational, even though you can put it in more aspirational terms, as I tried to do in Roosevelt Care. But um, I, I think that in the end is one of the biggest takeaways I got from not the writing of the book itself, but reflecting on why the results were not what I was really hoping for in terms of actually stirring uh, real activism and real excitement around the issue and um, there's there's a lot to say about that in fact maybe that will be a future episode of this podcast but for now let's move on to book number three So one way you can think about free market revolution is that it's really our critique of the so-called right, of people who see themselves as defenders of free markets, defenders of capitalism. And equals unfair is our answer to the so-called left, to at least a large segment of the people attacking capitalism explicitly. And so you can think free market revolution is saying, hey, guys who think capitalism is great, your arguments suck, and then our view, or what we're doing in Equals Unfair, which I should have said explicitly, was co-authored with Yaron Brook, just like Free Market Revolution, um, were saying to the left, hey guys, your critique of capitalism sucks. And so one of the things that going into this book really enabled me to do was something that I had not really fully done, which was go in depth into the left is a lousy term, in fact, it's really a non-concept, but uh, at least to what you could think of as economic egalitarian uh, egalitarians who I think dominate, uh, let's put it as the Democrats or the, the left. Um, but they have a much more defined ideology that has been popularized by just a whole swath of people. And this was it, it was a, one of the things that really benefited me about that was that it gives you a certain amount of x-ray vision when you understand at a very deep fine-grained level the kind of opposing frameworks you're dealing with the kind of arguments they use to support those the kind of narratives they use to support those and i'll say more about that later but rather than just having kind of general categories of these are areas of capitalism they're attacked it's getting clear on how the other side thinks down to the philosophic roots, but not only in essentials. As we talked about, there's a real value in having an essentialized view of these things, but there's also a huge value in being able to see the, how would you put it, the kind of, you know, tree-level view of how they think and how they argue, and really knowing the specifics of their worldview. And it puts it took me closer and hopefully the readers closer to what is really when you've hit the jackpot intellectually one thing that uh my friend greg salmieri former guest on this show once said to me many years ago and if i butcher it uh it's my fault not greg's was it's not when you can answer the other side's argument that you have them it's when you know what their response to your answer is going to be that you have them and so In really working on this book and thinking it through and doing the research that was the point at which I had that with you know many of the people who are at you know at the forefront of attacking capitalism so I mentioned having this x-ray vision into the egalitarians and one way and I try to share that then with the readers and give it to them and this is really important because I think It's too easy to have it just at the level of, well, it's altruism versus capitalism. But one way to think about it is that altruism has a metaphysics, or that there's a much wider framework that that you want from A to Z in order to be able to really understand how people think. And I think the kind of starting point for understanding the economic egalitarians is that the starting point is that they're determinists, that we are not the shapers of our fate, that we are not as individuals in control of our lives and responsible and therefore getting credit for what we create that we are that we are fundamentally shaped by society and that our outcomes are fundamentally shaped by luck and therefore nobody actually deserves having greater wealth or any kind of value than other people that that's all undeserved so how is it then that some people have more and some people have less because if people don't deserve their outcomes, well then what should be our default view of, ju- of just outcomes? Well, it should be that they should be, de- that they should be even. At least that's the intuition, right? Because, you know, if we all sit in a classroom and uh, we dump a pile of money in the middle, and you know, somebody just comes and dumps it there. How should we divide it? Well, the fair thing seems that we should divide it equally. And it's only if you have a perspective that no, some people earned it and some people uh, didn't earn it, that you would say, okay, it's fair that it should be not divided evenly. And so they say, well, since it's all a matter of luck, since nobody's really responsible um, for what they've earned, then we should have equality, but we don't have anything resembling economic inequality. And why not and the basic answer that they give is power and that they see all of life in power relationships and power dynamics it's that you have the people with power who are exploiting the people without power and that is an explanation for why we have a inequality rising inequality and therefore the solution is sacrifice and that's where morality or uh, and particularly the ultra-strain directly come in. It's that we should have equality. We don't because of power. That's illegitimate. And so morally, we need to demand the people with more values sacrifice to those with less. And if they won't sacrifice, uh, they should be forced to sacrifice. They should be made to sacrifice in order to achieve more equality and to bring us closer to that fairness and to that ideal so that's the framework right we have determinism power and sacrifice but then that framework isn't just argued for as a framework in fact most of the way the public is exposed to it is through people using that framework to explain the world and in fact the framework often it kind of takes a back seat or it's there it'll poke its head up here and there Um, but it's not that they'll lay it out explicitly certainly not in an essentialized way that i have but they'll use it to explain the world and this is the idea of moral narratives and this is an explanation of where we are how we got here and where we should go and so in our book we go into depth on the inequality narrative and this is something that has shown up in books by people on the left particularly economists but also journalists it's everywhere and it's how did we get here and where are we going and uh, i won't recapitulate the whole thing here but it basically amounts to you know we had Uh, During the post-World War II period, this period of relatively high equality, strong unions, big government, high taxes, and shared prosperity. Everybody was getting better off at the same time. It was amazing. And then suddenly we took a turn where we just went full-on capitalism and the result was the rich got super rich and everybody else stagnated or did worse. And so this kind of moral narrative that and you can see how that kind of narrative implies a solution right well we need to restrict we uh people's freedom we need to restrict capitalism and and try to create more equality and then everybody will be better off and we'll live in a just or more just more fair society and this idea of moral narratives uh is a really helpful perspective to understand things And, and and certainly like ayn rand had a really important one that showed up in many um things that she wrote and many of the speeches that she gave number of her ford hall forums uh, faith and force for the new intellectual it's in effect in galt's speech and i mean hers is a much more first of all it's true but second of all i think it's a much wider perspective she's not focused on what's happening since the 70s although she has kind of you could think many moral narratives um that are kind of more focused in modern times but hers is the idea of that you know it's reason gives rise to freedom and then is undercut by altruism now that's oversimplified but you can see the way in which it's she has a certain intellectual framework but it's not just presented only as a framework it's also used to explain where we are how we got here and where we should go so that's legitimate in and of itself but what we do in the book is we say okay let's start out by instead of just like giving them the the framework or asserting that this is the egalitarian framework this is why it's bogus here's how they covered up what we do is really start with okay here's the narrative people are actually hearing the inequality narrative we call it let's give it its best statement that we can and i think it is the kind of best clearest most well supported we could make it version of that narrative then examine it, pick it apart, show that it's completely bogus, give people our framework and our narrative for understanding the world, and then expose the underlying framework that the egalitarians have that explain how they could get this so wrong, which is namely what they're after is power, is sacrifice, is tearing down in the name of envy rather than actually allowing individuals to thrive. And the final thing I want to talk about is this, uh, an issue that I really got a lot of clarity on, and I I hope other people got a lot of clarity on, which is this idea of what it means to earn something. Because this is so central to the morality of a free market and to the criticisms of free market that are leveled by egalitarianism, egalitarians. And so I mentioned before, they have this whole notion that basically says individuals don't earn anything all all outcomes are really determined by then shaped by the collective not the achievement of individuals and certainly not of an individual self-created achievement it's just a matter of luck you didn't pick your parents your genes your upbringing and all that so how can you and, and you benefit a lot from society so how can you say you built that and if you look at the conservative critique or the conservative alternative and libertarians i think for the most part too there's a focus well there's two variations though they're related one is on the idea of like sheer hard work but hard is like the stress is on the hard the suffering and how rough it is and all of like the agony that a person goes under that really says he's entitled to something and you know i mean this i think makes a mockery of earning because the idea is that uh well you know if. If you're a ditch digger, really morally, don't you earn more than somebody else? And this is also related to the idea of merit, which is treating economic outcomes in a society as like a, hey, you're a moral hero badge. And certainly we stress throughout the book that there's a real uh, positive moral moral evaluation of achievement that one should have. But if you're thinking about what it means to earn something and we're thinking about the kind of scale of incomes that people earn, this is the perspective is not um hey good job and this dollar every dollar in your pocket represents how much of a great person you are it's really a perspective on causality that to earn something is to create value that's really what it means to earn something there's two aspects of understanding that so one is that the values are determined by the free voluntary choices of everybody who chooses to deal with you it's not like we take a collective vote and say hey how much value did bob create no it's each individual judges for themselves how val- how valuable what somebody created is every time they make a buying decision including you know an employment decision so if your employer decides i'm going to pay you fifty thousand dollars um and you know that like that's in effect the market saying yeah the value you're creating uh, is such that paying you $50,000 is worthwhile and paying you significantly more wouldn't be because nobody's willing to outcompete your employer at a significantly higher wage. So there's that. But then there's a second aspect. So, in, in thinking about the kind of value that somebody creates, certainly um, it's relevant how hard they work. that's really a secondary issue. The The primary issue is what Ayn Rand called ability. And I mean, it was very striking to me as I was thinking about equals unfair during the writing of it, how little we use this concept of ability in free market revolution. I think really it comes up in one section where we talk about Ayn Rand's pyramid of ability, and yet it permeates her work. This idea of human ability is just such a focus and what human ability is really focused on is it's it's not just the sheer how much effort you exerted how quote hard you worked nor is it just your kind of innate abilities or intelligence rather it is the unity of them it is the effects of you given your identity and your choices it's what you create given your identity, and that is what you earn. So for those of you who are watching my commentaries on OPAR video, a good integration here is that um, what ability is capturing is that you have a metaphysically given nature, and then you have free will of what you choose to do with that nature. And what egalitarians in effect say is only choice should count, that it should be a total zero with no identity choosing in a vacuum, responsible for everything about its achievements, including its own identity. That's the only thing that counts as you really earn something. And Ayn Rand says that no, there's no such thing as that everything has an identity, including an agent who chooses and guides his own life. And that that can't disqualify earning, it's the precondition. There's always an identity there. The question is, what do you do with it? And so you know the genius who didn't choose to be genius but who exercised his intelligence decided to apply it let's say as an entrepreneur and was able to create a business that made you know hundreds of billions of dollars and who as a result himself or herself is a billionaire that is precisely what it means to earn something it's the only thing it could mean to earn something there's no such thing as like earning your parents or earning your genetics or earning your upbringing in the sense of like having created those and so what they're doing is they're setting up a a, is they're attempting to rewrite reality and create a standard you know it's actually very similar to the way in which people say that to actually have knowledge, to actually be certain, one would have to be infallible. You would have to be like God who knew something directly, automatically, infallibly, in, in total. You just grasp the universe, quote, at a glance. And since human beings aren't like that, well, we don't have knowledge and we don't have certainty. So this is the same thing where they're setting up an unreal standard that a standard that ultimately rejects the axioms and saying that is what it would mean to earn something nobody earns anything and therefore we can take everything and that's what objectivism rejects at a very deep level and it's and and it was striking to me in fact even in thinking this through in the last couple hours it became even more clear to me how much of that is just right there in her conception of human ability and it's it's a good reason why You know we we think we kind of like all right yeah i read ayn ran a couple times but there's so much that you can get from you can endlessly go back to the well and even just grasping you know here's a concept she uses a lot that i don't use that much what can i learn from that what can i glean from that why did she think it was so important and why didn't i so finally i want to talk about a book it's really an essay collection that i did with Yaron Brook. brooke a few other people contributed specific pieces called in pursuit of wealth which is a moral defense of finance and i don't have too much to say about the book itself except for it was in thinking about and creating that book and some of the plans that i had around that book um, i learned a lot about myself and partly what my interests were but also my limitations so I've mentioned with a couple of these books that there was always, I never felt like I could take what was a powerful case as a book and turn it into really useful messaging that could empower a person to read the book and now go out and be effective as somebody crusading for these ideas. And so it was like, how do you turn this into persuasive messaging? And how do you empower people with the right, you know, policies that they should get behind? And it, and it was, Than trying to do this in finance and recognizing, no, I still didn't have the skill sets that I needed in order to be able to do that, in order to be able to present a complicated field as clearly and as simply as I wanted to so that, you know, it had the kind of persuasive impact of something like Alex's moral case for fossil fuels. And it was during that period where I had the opportunity to go and work with Alex. And it was exactly for this reason, or at least the primary was for this reason, which is that even after these books, which I think are really good and I'm very proud of, and I certainly think they moved the the pro-freedom literature forward, and I think honestly in many ways by leaps and bounds, um, it still was not, I was still not at the level that I wanted to, and so it, in in trying to do for finance what Alex had done energy in energy, and realizing that no, there's still there's a skill set shortage here that I needed to acquire. That's what you know made me make, which was a very difficult decision, leading the leaving the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, because I have so much admiration for the people who worked there and benefited so much from their help. And I think you know the really nice thing was okay. After three years, I think I was able to acquire the skill set that I wanted to, and now realizing that actually what my real passion was was to be able to share that skill set with others and so it's you know my primary goal became not to apply that skill set myself or at least not that is my primary goal whether it's to finance or any other field but to take the kind of learning that went into making the case for capitalism and making it in a bunch of different industries and looking at various parts of the history of capitalism of the growth of statism in real depth having this broad expansive toolkit and knowledge of how to communicate and think and persuade that then it's okay i've you know created my books and i'm sure i will create many more um, but the major idea is now how can everybody else in the freedom movement do this because we still have to remedy that problem that i identified back in 2009 2010 when i was working on free market revolution and looked around and said man we have nowhere near the intellectual firepower we need to make it super easy to learn everything that you need to learn about capitalism super compelling so that even people who are coming from very different backgrounds and are not uh let's say susceptible is not the right word, but let's say are more resistant to these ideas that it's just so overwhelmingly obvious that our conclusions are right. That's what has to happen. So I hope that uh, some of these lessons have been useful to you. And I think hopefully the books that I've created have been uh, are, are inspiring and are going to move more people to write that kind of material and You know that's what this whole series is about it's how do we make everybody more effective advocates for liberty and encourage people to be more active and ambitious advocates for liberty so that is it for this episode i'm gonna uh, i think do more of these occasionally where i'll just share some of my thinking i'm Definitely going to continue interviewing our amazing guests. I'll be frank with you. I wanted to interview one this time, but we had some scheduling difficulties. Uh, But I really liked the chance to kind of reflect on certain issues that I haven't publicly spoken about and hadn't even fully uh, refined my thinking on in the case of identifying some of these these lessons in, in very specific ways. So with that, as always, the best way to stay in contact is to sign up for the newsletter at dawn at dawnswriting.com. And be sure to like this video, subscribe to the YouTube channel and hit that bell because we don't want you to miss a single video or episode that's coming to the pike. Talk next time.